Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. It has been one year. One year. <laughs> Happy anniversary. We, we said this last week. It's fine. What's time? What, like, sorry, are you still living in pre-pandemic notions of time? <laughs> Whatever, Nora. It is still... It is still the anniversary. <laughs> a very long anniversary for a very long year. You're totally right. It's completely appropriate. Thank you. Don't ever <laughs> question me again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see how this episode goes. Um, y- did you get that <laughs> vaccine yet? <laughs> no. So, okay. Um, look, I I made my appointment. I was supposed to get my vaccine tomorrow morning at 8.45 a.m. And uh, something happened this week where in California, uh, masses of people were were (laughs) deregistered from from their appointments. And I I was one of them. And (laughs) I haven't... Yeah. And I haven't been able to rebook an appointment like uh, the way that they're doing it is that appointments are are released. It seems like every day. So you kind of have to check in the morning to see what's available. And um, even though I'm in tier one as an education worker, when I go and I click to book my appointment, it says like, you know, only 65 and older available or only janitorial staff available. And the appointments that are the least available are the ones for education workers. So they've basically tiered the tier and I'm not, uh, I'm not um, uh, on the priority list for the tier. So I'm going to try again this week. We'll see what happens. I do have um, a couple of friends who are research assistants and TAs who have managed to get vaccinated. So I'm just unlucky, it seems, <laughs> in, in having gotten re- deregistered. But uh, I'll keep trying. It's going to mm-hmm. happen soon. It will It will probably happen before the end of the month. And the good thing for me is if, um, and I hear this is not happening in, in the same way in Canada, so uh, apologies to everyone. But the good thing for me is if uh, if I am not able to book it on my own with, with the state, uh, UCLA will book it for me eventually. So um, I'm being overcautious by booking it on my own. Wow. Wow. Yeah. The only vaccine story that I have is that I have a family member call me on his way to getting his vaccine just to make sure that he wasn't going to die from the vaccine. And I was like, you're not. Oh. <laughs> you're not. It's okay. You so got you're this. You're the authority on that. I am the authority on this. So, um, Does he know you went to J school? <laughs> and you dropped out of J school? Does he know that? Yeah, yeah, he he, he knows that. He really just trusts me. So it was um, it was quite a nice call. And so you know, dear listener, if you have any um, fears about this vaccine, still because there's a lot of stuff to be afraid of for sure in the world, just know that um, I would give you the same advice as I would give to my own family, which is it's safe. Go get it <laughs> when you can, and that will probably be October. <laughs> Uh, womp womp. Yes. Are you vaccinated? I'm against the flu. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you know the flu doesn't exist anymore? Oh, I know that. That is actually really amazing. Um, no, I I got a quickie uh, measles shot this year because the last time there was a measles outbreak, 
I was like, ooh, that needs to be boosted. And so I did that this year, which I thought was a good idea during the COVID stuff. Um, but no, 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 no. I don't, I don't think I'm going to be vaccinated any time at all soon. But that being said, my city is booking people who are 60 years of age and older. So, you know, we are slowly backing up in the age categories. That's great because my city is so excited about all these vaccinations that we're opening up again tomorrow and gyms are opening up tomorrow. (laughs) And I just think that that's a bad idea and that I will, vaccinated or not, be stuck in this room forever. And with that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do we have anybody to thank this week? We do. I assume we have some social distance um, support coming from Claire, Stephanie, Ian, David, Michaela, Lisa, Stephanie, and David. Thank you so much. And you know, there was two Stephanies and two Davids in that pile. Folks, that was not an error. Those were four people. <laughs> thank you so, so much for supporting the podcast and to everybody who listens, shares, and donates uh, regularly to us or irregularly, like whatever. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so we, we're going to talk about three things this week. And uh, the first is is more of an update than anything else. So we've got an update on Bill C-7. Yes, Thursday night it passed. It passed the House of Commons. It was a, it was my first time watching a vote in the hybrid House of Commons. So I will say, I mean, this is all bad news. But the only positive thing I will say about watching one of these votes is that I like the hybrid model. I like the idea that not everyone has to go to Ottawa every single week. So that's kind of positive. But let's talk about Bill C seven. So this was the bill that expands medical assistance in dying to people who have a health condition that doesn't necessarily mean that death is foreseeable in the short term. And they also expanded it to say that your condition uh, can be just one condition and it can be a mental health uh, condition. And so now the legislation in Canada allows someone to ask for medical assistance in dying if they have a medical, uh, if they have a mental health crisis, if they're in crisis, um, if they are disabled, if they have some sort of health issue that is causing them some sort of lack of quality of life, and you know, as we explained in the in the episode a couple of weeks ago on Bill C seven, all this does is it gives people an option in a world where the the good options, like having access to housing, having access to a psychiatric doctor, having your meds for free, having access to medical devices for free or quickly or both, all of that is still not possible in Canada. It takes a long time. There's a lot of bureaucratic hoops you have to jump through. A lot of times people just can't do it. And so then they go without medicine or they go without certain medical devices, but your doctor can Uh, help you commit suicide. And, you know, the reaction online and the reaction of the liberals, I mean, they they passed it and then they they applauded, which I just thought was so sick. And there seems to be a really big divide in people understanding why this is such a fucking problem. Uh, As I got accused of being like a right-wing hack, an anti-abortion activist, and a whole bunch of kind of, you know, bunch of bullshit online from folks who are mostly older, who I assume like will be planning to use MAID at some point in their lives, and who just, I don't know, are ignoring the voices of disability activists in this country? Yeah. And okay, so this this argument... uh you know, like it, it just doesn't make sense to me that people would just reduce it and flatten the argument to be something so simple when it's not. The argument that from from the left critiquing people uh, who are 
critique rightfully critiquing this um, critiquing this legislation is that uh, you know that this is very similar uh, to the right to choose and it is in fact an extension of the right to choose that folks should have bodily autonomy and have the right to choose what to do with their own bodies and it's like yeah <laughs> but why are we why are we flattening this particular issue into um into the into a familiar argument an argument that we are familiar with um that that allows us to say you're on the left and you're on the right and then make um judgments about people like Nora uh online based on that that doesn't make sense it erases the complexity of the argument of the situation it erases the voices of disability activists who've been rightfully um raising the the issues that the majority of people the majority of uh you know uh, people who do not have disabilities who are not dealing with with the types of problems that folks who are advocating for a shift in the way that we talk about this and uh, advocating for, who were advocating for this legislation to not pass the people who are making these decisions aren't dealing with those issues um, and so why would we why would we erase those voices it's more complicated than that I mean we've discussed this on the show before but I'll just uh, repeat um, just you know, quite simply that it's not a real choice. It is not, you know, it's not a real choice about bodily autonomy. It is not a real choice about, um, you know, uh, having the, the right to do what you will with your own body. If you don't have all of the options in front of you, one of the options should be getting the care that you need. <laughs> If getting the care that you need is not an option, um, then I, I don't know how you could um, honestly flatten this debate and say that it's just about this is a left right debate about being pro-choice or not, about being uh, in favor of bodily autonomy or not. That's absurd. That is absurd. We are not living in a world where everybody has access to the, th the types of care that we need in order to live full lives uh, in the fullness of dignity that we all deserve. And treating this debate, this uh, C7, like it is, uh, is, is fucking ableist and really, really fucking dishonest and disrespectful. Yeah, it also ignores the fact that within the women's movement, there was a lot of debate from among racialized feminists who were saying that white feminists were fighting for choice above all else, above like there's a reason why the movement for choice became a movement for reproductive justice, which means giving people choices that they have access to food, they have access to a place to live, they have access to prenatal care and postnatal care and, and daycare and help and all these kinds of things, because in absence of that, what kind of choice is a choice really? Um, and so that kind of nuance, like that was that was brought to the feminist movement by by black feminists, by queer feminists, by 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 feminists of color who were fighting against the 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 dominant white middle class feminist um, movement that was like choice for all else. And that was, of course, a movement that got choice originally for only people who could pay for it, which, of course, then expanded from from like that original decision. And so there are a lot of parallels and um 
yeah, I find it annoying that there are people that would call themselves progressive that want to draw on on these kinds of parallels um, in a in a dishonest way, or to say that people should not have the right um, to 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 choose medical assistance in dying if that's what they want to choose. And it's just like this is the biggest advance in healthcare in a generation. The first legislation of made uh, in 2016, and now today, those are the biggest changes to healthcare in a generation. And after a fucking year of a pandemic that has killed by like way overwhelmingly killed people who are disabled. Uh, you know, if you look at the list of comorbidities, over 90% of people had comorbid had at least one comorbidity. Uh, over 70% of people had at least three comorbidities, right? Underlying health issues. Uh, we know that people with intellectual disabilities uh, uh, like Down syndrome are 10 times more likely of dying from COVID based on research in the UK. Of course, Canada doesn't collect this kind of information, so it's hard to know what's going on here, but there's not much reason for us to believe it's different. Yeah, like it's it's a really disgusting advance, quote unquote, in healthcare. And everybody who... Um, I don't know who told me this week to fuck off for being a right wing hack. I just would like to tell them to fuck off, too. But I also just want to mention that the disability filibuster was so awesome. Sandy, did you check this out? I saw just a little bit of it in between in between homework. But uh, why don't you describe it? Yeah. So for the five days leading up to this decision, there was something called the disability filibuster. And of course, a filibuster is a, is a procedural term for when you're like trying to run the clock on a on a debate. And you might be able to kind of get past having to vote on something if you can just run the clock with your extremely long and compelling speeches. So that's where the word filibuster comes from. And so for five days, for 24 hours a day, there were activists who put uh, programming together from panel discussions to art to poetry and music. And it was so amazing. I like I am like, you know, for in the last, I don't know, four months or five months, it, it feels like this is a real advance in in in. Um, protest action, like just amazing. Like I, I, I dipped in one night and I, and I caught an incredible conversation about um, uh, what kind of cases uh, of, of expanded maid has taken people's lives in, in Belgium and in Holland. I was like blown away. I tuned in one night and there was a, there was someone reading uh, a book to, to whoever was tuning in. I tuned in one night and uh, someone was, was, was sewing something and talking about what they were sewing. I listened to a panel in French. I listened to, uh, someone who had written protest music in the 1970s and 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 rewrote some songs for the for the first C7 it was just so amazing and so to all the folks involved I know Catherine Frazee played a really really big role and she's just so amazing uh, I know Gabrielle Peters played a really big role and then there's a, um, uh, Inclusion Canada I think that played a, a big role on the supporting side and and all of the activists who were involved like just 24 hours of, of non-stop live programming like just what an amazing protest to bring people uh, from across Canada in a moment like this to be able to find each other, hear from each other, uh, talk to one another, and uh, and then quite, you know, basically organize, organize to do what they can to support one another as this legislation was going through the going through the channels. Yeah, as you as you mentioned, um, uh, black women's experiences with the choice movement, I just wanted to to add that, uh, yeah, this is similar to that and uh, Black and Indigenous women's experiences with being, uh, with facing sterilization from the state, you know, like those types of, you know, the abortion before pregnancy begins, that the state was totally fine with doling out to particular types of um, identities to Black and Indigenous people. 
And, you know, it just feels like that there's a, you know, this is like an analogous situation, you know, the the choice movement ignoring those concerns from black and indigenous people for so long and arguably still as, you know, there was news uh, not too long ago about um, forced sterilization still happening in Canada. Um, you know, I it, it it's just we we know this playbook. We know um, that this is wrong flattening arguments to ignore um, the concerns of marginalized people. We know it's wrong. We know it results in devastating consequences. So let's not do that shit again. Very wise. Although tonight, uh, or today, depending on when you're listening, we've got similar terrible stories, don't we? Yes. And so we're talking about the experience of a woman from Quebec named Mireille Jamuo. This woman uh, had an experience in a hospital that um, calls back the experience of Joyce Echequan. So um, Mireille was a black woman who was admitted to the hospital in Longueuil, Quebec. Uh, the hospital was Charles Le Moyne Hospital. And she was, she recorded herself um, saying that the, the hospital wanted to kill her and that she needed to get out of the hospital. Uh, she talked about how she was allergic to penicillin, but that the hospital had administered her penicillin anyway. And she ultimately died uh, after this video was posted. Um, and again, like I say, it calls back to the experience of Joyce Echequan, who... Um, was an indigenous woman who uh, recorded a live video of hospital staff mistreating her and who also ultimately died as a result of her of of the negligence of hospital staff. Yeah, in the case of Joyce Echaquan, um, there had been many stories at the Joliet Hospital of Atikamek women and men uh, be giving being given morphine inappropriately and uh, and Joyce had said that she could not have morphine I don't remember if it was an allergy if she knew that she didn't handle it well but she was saying to the the hospital staff that she should not be given morphine and they they did give it to her and in the aftermath of that death there are many people who went to social media to say that they knew of other people or they themselves had had similar experiences in in the Joliet Hospital. Um, and, uh, you know, that was supposed to be a turning moment where the government said, okay, this is serious. They have tried to pretend to do things to improve um, health care access for Indigenous people. There has been some interesting things that have happened in Joliet, um, you know, that have involved the community to try and come up with alternative uh, services for people to not necessarily have to go to the hospital. Um, and then, you know, at least one of those staff was fired. But the story of Mireille is um, all too familiar. You know, it has only been, what, six or seven months since uh, since Joyce's video was posted and since she lost her life. And here's another woman, another mother, uh, 44 years old. And, um, you know, this, 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 
this discussion, like, it's very pronounced in Quebec, medical racism. I think everybody who's not white has an experience of medical racism within the Quebec healthcare system. But the, 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 the hospital system, you know, it's not just a Quebec thing. And, um, and, you know, activists within Montreal have been organizing around this. This, this happened earlier last week. And, and it's only getting into English media now, but this is really a Canadian issue. Like this is not this is not only isolated to Quebec. This is something that happens in hospitals across this country, and that uh, that will continue to happen because our healthcare system is so racist, has so much systemic racism in it, and no politicians uh, have the courage, the desire, the plans, the uh, feel the pressure to really do anything about that. Yeah, and I'll I'll be very honest that I had an experience like this before where um I was uh somewhere seeking care and uh I I told um my caregiver that I was allergic to penicillin and uh I was asked if I had allergies and I may had needed to be put on um antibiotics and I told them that uh, I was allergic to penicillin and they said, "Well, Okay, well, what happens to you if you if you ingest penicillin? And I'd, I'd never had that question asked to me before. And I said, "Well, actually, I don't. I don't know. Um, I've been allergic to penicillin since I was a baby. <laughs> I know that I it was serious enough that I needed to wear a medic alert bracelet for most of my childhood." And the doctor said, okay, well, um, children often grow out of penicillin allergies, actually, so it's probably not a big deal. And I remember saying, I, I think, though, that we could maybe err on the cautious side, perhaps, yeah. because I am aware that there are other antibiotics. I have had other antibiotics in my life prescribed to me as a result of being allergic to penicillin. I'm just really surprised that that would be something that you would suggest. And, uh, you know, they they acted like it was not a big deal, and I was like really confused about it. Uh, but told this story to people in my family, and you know it was just interesting that the response. You know, now that I'm thinking back, it, it, the response was to tell other stories of like weird experiences we've had, and we we didn't we didn't approach it as though oh we're obviously having this experience because we're black. But now that I'm thinking back, you know this is the type of thing that black people go through in. Um, the medical system of not being believed or of exaggerating um, situations or of a situation that we are telling um, telling a medical care provider about uh, not being as serious as as we are telling them that it is. And so I, you know, seeing this, uh, you know, this this woman was a member of the uh, Cameroonian community and they organized to get her transferred to another hospital Um uh, when they heard about her experiences and um, that ultimately did happen. And she died just a couple of days after she was transferred. And it looks like uh, Quebec is going to be doing a, a coroner's inquest into to what happened here uh, and rightfully so, but it seems uh, like, um, you know, Murray had an experience that so many other black and indigenous people have in the care system. Yeah, well, I, I shared this story on Facebook and uh, a friend of mine who is black, uh, who is from Toronto, said that uh, her grandmother had the same situation happen as well, although didn't die, was able to convince the, the, the hospital staff to not administer penicillin. 
It's so bizarre that at one year of this pandemic, the conversation, and not just one year of the pandemic, but also the year that we had after the death of George Floyd and after the death, or after the the incredible protests um, that swept Canada and really swept North America, um, uh, 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 to calling out anti-Black racism in general, you know, specifically to the police, but also in general, that that this conversation within of, of anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism, and racism in general within the healthcare system has just like not gone anywhere. Like despite the overwhelming uh, evidence that COVID is disproportionately killing uh, racialized people, like it's just it's just nowhere. You know, yet last night I was adding to my list of of people who died in the healthcare system. And I added two more names, and it was two more black men. And that's brought the total uh, deaths. So there's there's been at least 50 deaths of healthcare workers from COVID, from outbreaks that they picked up, um, you know, on the the job. And of those 50 people, uh, 12, we don't know who they were. 12, their identity hasn't been divulged, so we don't know anything about them. And 18 were black. Wow. Seven were South Asian. Nine were white. You know, and then and then goes down from there with other ethnicities, but like that is unbelievable. Like, what what's the black population of Canada? Like five percent? You know, eighteen of of fifty when twelve of those people are unknown. So let's say you know eighteen of thirty eight deaths were black. What the fuck, Canada? And when are we going to have this conversation in a way that is serious? Um, and how do you convince someone like Francois Legault, who's a fucking racist, uh, Doug Ford, who's a fucking racist, Justin Trudeau is a fucking racist. I, I assume John Horgan's got to be a racist. J- Jason Kenney's a fucking severe racist. <laughs> Scott Moe is a racist. The Maritime Provinces have a lot of racist. Like, like what the fuck? <laughs> that has been the most one of the most frustrating things for me over the last year is how vocal you can be on a particular issue or how obvious an issue can be uh, that it f- impacts black and indigenous people in this country. Okay. And literally, you know, no one will care. <laughs> no, one, no one will say anything about it. No one will talk about it. No one will um, put it at the top of their priority list who's in power. And it's just such a fucking slap in the face um, because it's not like any one of these people that you've just mentioned can can claim that they don't know what you've just said. Like they can't claim that they don't know that black people are being impacted um, uh, differently. Um, And yet there's, there's just nothing. There's like no urgency around this. There's no um, movement to try to, to end uh, this experience. And it just, I don't know that that is really makes me uh, fucking sad and angry and sad and angry and sad and angry, a terrible cycle of sad and angry. And, you know, I I just told this story about myself, but I could tell I could tell unending stories um, that people have told me about their experiences in healthcare, you know, and uh, that that's just my own family. So, you know, there's and there's more than that. So, you know, it's quite upsetting. Yeah. And these these stories, you know, they they keep happening. Right. Like the, the, the. 
Joyce Ashaquan was supposed to be the, the moment that Quebec was like, oh, my God, we have this crisis. We have to deal with this. And only a, a month and a, and, a, and a bit later, six weeks later, in a, in a hospital in Shikurumi, George Hervé Awashish died in very bizarre circumstances within the hospital. Again, people were like, what the fuck? What's going on? What's happening within these hospitals? There's also the story of Sarah Morrison, who went to a Kitimat hospital in medical distress while she was pregnant. Uh, the, the hospital didn't take her seriously, turned her away. The, her, her family had to drive her to uh, you know, a hospital in Terrace, 60 kilometers away, and, and she, she lost the baby of that pregnancy. Like, I, I, th- I think that you know, in a moment like this pandemic where everything is laid bare, where we can see where all of these issues, like how they impact communities and the, and the trauma that they deliver to communities. And of course, this trauma is not just one person, like the children of Joyce, the children of Marais, um, you know, any of these, the folks around these families and their communities, there's, there's, there's trauma that's inflicted upon all of them. And the Canadian state just kind of marches along, you know, like instead dealing with Bill fucking C7 instead, giving people the right to easier access to to medically assisted death rather than looking at how do we come up with some sort of pan-Canadian healthcare strategy to, to try and force hospitals to do better? How do we hold doctors to account? Where are their associations? Where are the, the provincial bodies that govern them? How do we, un, maybe we have to disband those bodies because maybe those bodies, they probably are very implicated in these things. But, but as you said, Sandy, there's no urgency on this. Like, what will it take? Obviously, it's not death. So what the f- if it's not death, then what is it going to take for any of this stuff to change? Or do we have to completely change our mindset to, to, to know that actually it's not that it's going to take a, a disastrous moment for a politician to change their mind? But in fact, it takes a politician um, having the heat so strong on them that they have no choice but to change Direction, And I guess that that's an interesting conversation. Like, how do you force change? Because I certainly don't see fucking a parliamentary option. This is not like the NDP has been uh, setting anything on fire after the death of, of Joyce Ashaquan, which they should have. Right. That would have been something they could have done. They didn't do that. OK. Uh, obviously, the liberals are the problem, the main problem. The conservatives are will be a main problem when they're back in power. Uh, and so if the if the solution has to be extra parliamentary, like what is it? How do we organize to be able to force these issues into the limelight. And certainly there's, there's communities doing that, like the family of Marais and uh, the you know communities within in Montreal, Cameroonian, uh, Cameroonian communities and Black Lives Matter in Montreal have been organizing to make this an issue. And yet, and yet it's, it, you know, it has to be bigger. It has to in- involve people that don't necessarily think that they're going to be us white people who will don't go to the hospital and don't get questioned, don't, get given medicine that we explicitly say that we are allergic to, right? Yeah. And I mean, uh, gosh, when did this happen, Nora? This happened last week, like the the last time you and I recorded. So not Tuesday, but last Sunday. This happened last week. And I'm taking a look at the English coverage. And the first English coverage news seems to have come out on Friday. Like, if it takes that long, like, I I know journalism is in crisis in Canada, but like, come the fuck on if it takes that long to get a massive news story um, from French media to English media, like that's part of the issue here. And you know, I I'm recalling um, an article that I read where 
Dr. Misure Dryden, who's a professor at Dalhousie University, um, discussed that um, racism and anti-Black racism are comorbidities um, that should be considered when we're uh, when we're talking about uh, uh, COVID-19 and the impacts of COVID-19. And, you know, she's absolutely right. And it, it appears that it should be considered with a lot more than just the pandemic. Absolutely. There's there's really no question. And you can cross check all of the comorbidities that have been the most fatal from hypertension to respiratory illness to um, dementia, Alzheimer's to diabetes. Like they, they all... The, the the most dangerous comorbidities have a higher occurrence within non-white communities. That's there's there's no question about that. Although when you look at the information about this from a, an organization like the Canadian Heart Society or Canadian Heart Institute or whatever they're called, um, they have to rely on American data. They have to say that Black Americans are uh, more um, susceptible to these illnesses because they don't have the data in Canada. Not not that we need data to believe this stuff, but like, God, we can't even collect that. <laughs> like we can't even get a complete picture in, in the, 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 the multiple ways in which our health system is violent, is dangerous. And, and, you know, because I tuned into the disability filibuster so much, I heard so many stories of disabled people going to the hospital and experiencing really horrific things. It, uh, having nurses, suggest that maybe it's their time to die when they're in the hospital with a like a broken arm. Oh my fucking <laughs> right? like, god. Really horrific stuff and um and I also heard some really uh, like in, uh, incredible statistics about like you know if someone has a spinal cord in- cord injury how they foresee their life immediately after their injury a lot there's a high desire of people to end their lives because they can't imagine going on because they've lost the use of maybe their legs or maybe even more than their legs and how um, one study that looked at spinal cord injury uh, individuals um, put that at five years not one of them wanted to end their lives that so they'd all find a quality of life life because they were able to adapt and they had the services that they needed. You know, there's ways that the system can be fixing itself, that we can be forcing the system to fix itself. And we're just, we're just so bad at it. <laughs> we're so like, I, I guess, you know, I think about the unions, like where are the healthcare unions in this discussion? Uh, are they more often than not going to be protecting uh, a racist, violent member because they have a duty to protect than they are to like demand these systemic changes or to just empower their members to take on these changes themselves? Uh, again, where's the NDP in any of this? And and honestly, like I saw information about Tamere's death from some activists in Montreal, um, but it was in French, and so I, I, you know, I didn't exactly like I didn't exactly appreciate what was being said. It was it was not instant. I probably saw it on Tuesday or Wednesday, and it wasn't until uh, again a disability filibuster event where 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 folks reference what happened because talking about an allergy, a life threatening allergy, in the terms of disability and the healthcare system, and it's just like we have to do something. We have to do something. One final very short story uh, that we wanted to discuss tonight. Nora, how committed to are you to the queen they- being our head of state? <laughs> and I, well, I, just, I think I, that... Before you respond, I just want to remind you that there is still the death penalty in Canada for troubling the queen. 
Do you know it's actually illegal? It's it's against the criminal code to to startle the queen. Yeah, I think it's trouble. Maybe it's startling. I don't know. Whatever. Fuck it. Who cares? <laughs> the point is, how committed are you, Nora? How committed are you? And will you put it on the record? If you go back into my into my history of meme making, I put some very big startled eyes on the queen once and had some snakes fly in her face. And I was like, put a big line that just said illegal. So that's that's the only reason I know that. I, I think, you know, when we're, when we're talking about <laughs> the origin of our racist healthcare system, it's really hard to not think of how it really goes directly back to Liz. To Liz. Oh, wow. I can call her that, right? <laughs> uh, that's the kind of relationship you have with the with the monarchy? Go forward. <laughs> uh, I, I would have no problem with them, like, being uh, Nicholas Tude. Sorry? <laughs> oh, my God, Nora. Uh, okay, yeah, great joke there. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, we just wanted to just get, give us just a couple seconds because that's all this really deserves because this is really fucking obvious, obviously. Um, why the fuck do we still have a monarchy? And yeah, I know all of these conversations have um, uh, become really popular right now because of some weird interview that I definitely totally watched and Nora definitely probably didn't no. watch. <laughs> sure didn't. <laughs> Between Oprah and some royals. But like, I mean, let, let's actually talk about it. Like, why is the queen the, our head of state still? Because we are, the fuck? we are a fucking clown country is why. And so we need fucking clown representation in a clown country far, far away. Did you, did you read that article in the Irish Times that literally <laughs> called it a clown? It was it good. Was so, it was so good. <laughs> like, but you know, it, it's funny. Um, I, I, before reading that article, I had had this conversation uh, with Janae Khan just being like, uh, I can't believe that this is like even a discussion that people are like, well, no, we must we st- must still have the monarchy. The monarchy itself, you know, isn't racist, which is like, let me get to that in, two- in a second. Um, but like, really, you, you want to still have the monarchy? Like, wh- why? Like, the, the monarchy is like mm. a bunch of people who sit on really fancily designed chairs and wear useless, really fancily designed hats and <laughs> and collect a whole bunch of taxes still and are treated as royalty all over the world because they told us ages ago that God told them that they had the right to do it. I mean, are we, this is what we're trying to protect. <laughs> are we sure? <laughs> like, I just feel like it's a no brainer. I, the, why, why would we still have this? I'm going to need God to give us an, an updated message on this for me to really believe that. <laughs> <laughs> At the very fucking least. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, I just, you know, it's so bizarre. And the conversations that uh, have been happening in Canadian media and the UK media have been nothing short of fucking embarrassing. Yep. Um, the, you know, that uh, that interview um, that Erica Eiffel did with 
uh, uh, with Evan Solomon on CTV. Ooh, uh, that was good. On the panel was David Onley. It was just like such a, such a, it was a great, great interview. So if you haven't seen it yet, please look it up. Um, uh, and it, it was hilarious because in trying to defend the fact that the monarchy isn't racist, like the <laughs> the only thing like and we're talking about today right the only thing that david onley could like reach to was to say well did you know that it was a uh, a monarchical canada <laughs> 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 that passed a law to end slavery in 1790 it's just like in 1793 and it's just like wow that's where you had to go to make your point one, that's that is the proof that you have that the monarchy isn't racist is that you had to invoke slavery. And and that's that is where you thought the best argument would be. Mm. Oh, <laughs> no. I mean, it obviously like uh, his argument was so wrong as to be hilarious and. Uh, you know, uh, he he refers to some law that's been um, discussed in, uh, you know, it's the, the law is an act to end slavery in Upper Canada. And it has a longer name that is more descriptive of what it really was. But um, that's that's the law that he referred to, which I guess he doesn't know wasn't actually even though the law was called that it didn't what it actually did was made sure that everyone who was uh, enslaved in Canada would remain enslaved for life and that their children would also be slaves and until the age of 25. And I mean, if you consider the life expectancy of black people at that time, it was like, mm, yeah, basically the law was to ensure two generations more of slaves. <laughs> it's just like, I, is this the one, is this the one, my dude that you wanted to raise anyway um of course the monarchy is racist it like has no other purpose. <laughs> literally <laughs> like a giant a giant piece of their purpose was to be racist yeah. like to to enforce a system uh, various systems various caste systems to ensure that a specific kind of white elite class of people would be at the top forever more yeah. <laughs> like that was their how could anybody argue that they're not racist like it's with a straight face like i saw um a bbc interview of a guy who literally said well you know they colonized like a bunch of the places that they colonized had a lot of black and brown people how could they be racist the natural extension of that argument <laughs> <laughs> i just Anyway, it's just so so very fucking clear that, um, of course, uh, Canada shouldn't be a constitutional monarchy. What the fuck does that even mean? But also, you know, if you are, if you truly are the type of person who is against the institution of enslavement and is against genocidal colonialism, well, 
there absolutely shouldn't be a Canada or constitutional monarchy or not yeah. at all. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, I, that was such a great interview. So one of the things that I learned on a on um, on Webster, who's a local historian and rapper, he does a, a, a black history tour of Quebec City, was that the the laws in Lower Canada, where Quebec is located, allowed for slavery, but didn't al- didn't actually have anything on how to punish an escaped slave. And so slavery kind of ended by accident in a way in Lower Canada just before that act that you mentioned in Upper Canada. And by ended, I mean not really, right, because it can continue on these things. But there was um, there was a, a, a political party that organized with its sole purpose of protecting their right to own slaves uh, in Quebec, in Lower Canada in the late 1700s. And a couple of slave owner owners went to a judge, a specific judge, and said, um, you know, these slaves of ours have escaped. We need you to punish them. And the judge looked at all of the lower Canada law and was like, oh, I got bad news for you guys. Um, there's actually nothing in the law <laughs> about this. Oh, my God. And and because there was nothing in the law, he was like, I can't compel them to be punished. And it was his like he was the first judge to not just like pr- like in, like pretend to interpret how the law said. He was like, no, there's no law here. So sorry, but. They can run away and you can't do fucking shit about that. Now, um, again, it, it's not like that ended ended slavery. That was like a judicial way that some people were able to find a bit more freedom. But that had nothing to do with the queen <laughs> other than the queen had conquered Quebec, I guess, like 40 years earlier. <laughs> like that's a pretty indirect connection. But, um, but it, you know, even in the age of the Underground Railroad, you think of Marianne Shad, who had the Provincial Freeman, and her newspaper was encouraging freed slaves from the United States to come and settle in Canada. Come, come, come to Canada. It's great. And you can read the Provincial Freeman. I really encourage you to check out old copies. They're available online. It's really amazing. And even Marianne Shad, she wanted to become a lawyer. She didn't stay in Canada. She couldn't do that in Canada. She had to go to the United States. And she returned to the United States after editing that newspaper for 10 years and became one of the first black women in the United States with a, who was able to practice law. It's like, oh, why couldn't you do that in Canada? Oh, right, because we're fucking extremely racist mm-hmm. here and have been from the start. So, like, David Onley, like, Erica's right. You're wrong. Fuck off. <laughs> but, yeah, what happens if we got rid of the queen? Um, well, let's see. We could actually fulfill reconciliation. We actually could hand over crown land to the indigenous nations that have claim over those lands. Like, that would be the biggest, right? We would have to figure out how crown treaty relations would operate with who's the new agent of the crown. Would it just be the federal government then officially assumes the role that it already has been playing? Yeah, probably. That's not that difficult. And you have to get all the provinces to agree. Like, fuck, I don't fucking, yeah, our constitution just sucks like crazy. And every single province also sucks too. So, yeah. You know, we can talk about how hard it would be or, or not. And that was the proxy kind of argument. But there's just a lot of fucking pathetic sad sacks in this province, in this country that really love the fucking queen. And that's a good litmus test on whether or not someone is a complete fucking asshole. 